0: Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: I think half the states have passed laws that make it very, very difficult to make those videos public. So the whole idea that this was going to create greater transparency and accountability between police and the public seems to have gone by the wayside. And, you know, I doubt that in the Trump administration there'll be any pressure to to change that. So it's really going to depend on the individual localities.
0: What happens if you're a reporter trying to get public information from Town Hall or the state house? Chances are you're not going to have much luck. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Today in studio with me is Miranda Spivak, who spent 20 years as an editor and reporter for The Washington Post. Currently, she's the Eugene S. Pulliam Distinguished Visiting Professor of Journalism at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. Welcome to the podcast, Miranda. Thank you. We met at the Association of Alternative News Media's conference a few weeks ago in Washington, D.C., and you were on a panel with former podcast guests Kevin Goldberg and uh, Rick Blum talking about transparency and secrecy in government. Well, first of all, what did you think of that panel? What did you think of the conference?
1: You know, the conference was great. I mean, I was really fascinated and heartened to see so many eager and active people working in what, you know, they call themselves the alternative news weekly world. But really, I think this is becoming the bedrock of local journalism around the country. And there were a lot of people there, and they were very engaged. So I thought that was great. The panel, I thought, was really interesting because what I have discovered in doing a couple of these panels—I did one recently at Investigative Reporters and Editors— Is that there's huge pent up demand among journalists, especially younger journalists, eager for ideas and some information about how to go about extracting information from state and local governments, which I think I have discovered are notoriously not transparent.
0: So what are those people telling you? Is it that they just haven't had the experience or that they've tried and they they just don't know what to do? I think it's both.
1: A lot of people really don't realize that every state, each of the 50 states and many of the territories, have open government laws that require governments to have open meetings and to also give out lots and lots of public information that the public actually, the taxpaying public has already paid for. But they don't post a lot of it online. They don't have it in any really accessible place. And a lot of, you know, regular people and reporters don't know that you really can go in and get this information and that they have to give it to
0: you. So now you're involved in a project at DePauw. Could you sort of talk about that? It has to do with transparency?
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, I just finished late last year a series of five stories for Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, which, as many of you I'm sure know, is affiliated with NPR. And you can go on the Reveal website and read the series. It's called State Secrets. And that's really a play on words, which because we're really talking about state governments and not so much the federal. And what I had found in my own reporting, including when I was at The Washington Post, was while all of us here in Washington are really fascinated, uh, obsessed, rightly so, with federal government and the lack of transparency in the federal government, Made worse, I have to say, by the Obama administration, but even worse now by the Trump administration.
0: We're
1: in a (laughs) trend. Yeah, we're in a downward trend. Actually what's also going on at the state and local level is equally bad and maybe worse. And that's because that's where people's real lives I think are affected. You know, if you want to know what the school board is paying teachers or what they're spending on their own travel, or how your local tax dollars are being used, that should be information that you can get. But Partly because I think lack of training and also because of a desire to be non-transparent. State and local governments are very loath to give out that kind of basic information.
0: Yeah, I remember when I, uh, I used to work at the Connection newspapers in Northern Virginia and uh, actually being called in to sit down with the police, one of the municipalities that I covered, and, they, and it was going to be, I was going to get to talk to the communications director, what I thought was going to be sort of a, a briefing about, you know, what access i be able to have, what information I'd be able to get, turned out to be pretty much them sort of assessing me and and making it very clear that there was a lot of stuff that I wasn't going to have have access to. You know, we've, done, we've talked about this a couple of times in the podcast, for example, that you hear about cases, uh, police-involved shootings, where, you know, the press has tried to get some information about that and the... You know the the police department and the municipality behind it, the government behind it, just close ranks. That they, there's no way to get that information you know, for for lots of different reasons. And then it gets really frustrated when in those types of cases where suddenly the police review board decides, oh, that that officer is not going to be be tried. You know, trying to get access to do that to you know provide information that really should be and it actually is the the public's information is. is Can be incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, and you know, with the arrival of dash cams and body cameras now, that has opened up actually a whole new area of, you know, secrecy for local and state police departments. Everybody now has these cameras. There was a big push in the Obama administration. I think they spent $40 million to help those states and localities get the cameras. The idea was this was going to make police and residents more accountable. You know, the police aren't always in the wrong and they can be exonerated by a video too. And then what happened immediately was police departments, I think they, you know, they wanted the hardware, but they weren't ready, frankly, with the software. And so... A lot of states have, I think half the states have passed laws that make it very, very difficult to make those videos public. So the whole idea that this was going to create greater transparency and accountability between police and the public seems to have gone by the wayside. And, you know, I doubt that in the Trump administration, there'll be any pressure to to change that. So it's really going to depend on the individual localities. Some departments are more transparent. When there was a Police shooting in Tulsa recently, um, you know, that police department put the information out right away in Charlotte. When there was a pretty notorious police shooting, it took the police to several days to put out the video. But they did. Some places won't do it at all.
0: It's funny because it, it, there was this perception and this push that, you know, once once these cameras are in place, that that was going to make change everything. But it didn't because you ended up facing the same transparency and access troubles you did with with all other types of information
1: yeah and you know actually just to add to that in maryland which is a state i'm very familiar with there's a 10-day waiting period if a police officer does not want to be interviewed by investigators in maryland they have the right to wait 10 days that's just fatal to any kind of investigation
0: so what is it you can tell us about uh, your project what were you able to find out
1: the project i was inspired shall we say to do this project By my own experiences as a reporter for The Washington Post, and I was covering Prince George's County, Maryland, which has had a lot of issues. And one of them, frankly, is that it's never been a very transparent local government, didn't matter who was in power. And so there was a lawyer there in the county council who I think her full time job was to block me. And everything that I asked for, she insisted that I put the request in writing. I mean, and we're talking very basic things like accompanying documents, you know, to a piece of legislation that, frankly, should be on their website. I mean, the public should have access to that. But everything I had to ask for was in writing. And then she routinely waited the allowed 30 days that Maryland allows for the fulfillment of a Freedom or a State Public Information Act request and you know i just thought this is just an abuse of the system not by me i mean i was just asking for things that my readers wanted but by the government so i started to think about this a lot looked around the region looked at school systems and other governments in the region and they and to some one degree or another they were all pretty secretive and would go right up to the minute on the state Requirement to respond to one of these requests. or And they would make you formalize the request. I mean, it used to be when I started out as a reporter in Portland, Maine, going to the police department, they'd show you the log. You could ask for the reports. It was all there, and it was no big deal. And, you know, there's been a real clamping down, I think, over the years. Anyway, so I started looking around the country because I thought this isn't just happening in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., and lo and behold, discovered a whole bunch <laughs> of interesting things. Contracting, I mentioned police videos, Right here, actually, in Maryland, in Bethesda, there was a a really kind of troubling case of the state government keeping secret engineering studies so that a neighborhood that wanted a traffic light couldn't get it, even though those engineering studies were paid for with tax dollars and public contracts in general. I mean, a lot of governments will turn the contract over to the vendor and say what should be secret in here and the vendor will say everything and then you can't get it it's a very pronounced problem across the country every state has has open government laws they're all slightly different and many many people know that that system really doesn't work
0: yeah i know that in a lot of cases it's you know, like, for example, if you, you wanted to talk to get some information about the school system, well, we don't talk about, you know, teacher, teacher evaluations, you know, pay for or contract negotiations or, or disciplinary problems. Right. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll find other types of loopholes that the local agency is going to, you know, abuse to try to d- deny you that ability. To access that information So you alluded to this before We were talking about we're, we, Right now we've been talking about The state and local governments But about uh, concerns around The Trump administration But also, you know The Obama administration You know, that was an administration That came in And we're going to open up all the doors We're going to make Great big data sets available That people are going to be able to access We're going to have a- accessibility To our all of our government officials And information And that didn't really Kind of materialize
1: Well, you know, one thing they did do I think was modernize the data data systems a lot in the federal government. So if you can figure out how to use those systems, and that in itself is a problem for many, many people, but they have made a lot of, the Obama administration did make a lot of data public. I think where they kind of got off the rails was you know just sort of a lot of basic information requests that journalists and others, I mean, the biggest user actually of FOIA, the federal public information law, and the state laws is actually businesses, not journalists. And businesses want information about contracts and competition and all that kind of stuff. But the Obama administration really did try to shut out journalists a lot. And, of course, now with the Trump administration, this has gone to new lows, I guess, not new highs. But, um, yeah, it really is in this case. But Obama, you know, I think that it would be wrong to think that Obama was a huge proponent of open government.
0: Yeah. And that was actually um, what my experience coming from, you know, local covering local government, where if you had a question, you could go up to an elected official and ask them, you know, to stay, say something on the record. And they would say something on the record. Or you could go to a department and you request certain documents to so that are supporting legislation and they would give it to you coming to covering the federal government uh, the, under the Obama administration and trying to get somebody to return your phone call. It was it was insane. Yeah. And, and I think, it you know, you know, this is I don't think this is necessarily a new thing in the federal government, but it certainly was very frustrating. And then being criticized by why aren't you writing about anything good that we do? Well, why don't you tell us anything that you do so that we can say maybe this is something good that we could write about? So yeah. it's frustrating from th- that perspective. So what do you see are the big concerns for for journalists at this point?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things. In particular, you know, again, I want to talk really my expertise is on the state and local level. First of all, the decline in local coverage around the country means that there aren't a lot of people asking for information anymore. And so, in a way, I think readers don't even know what they don't know, and that's a problem. And then government officials, elected officials, you know, whether it's a small town city council or, um, you know, a big state government, nobody's bugging them. Nobody's asking them. They just, you know, they're not under a lot of pressure to really be publicly accountable. And then when they do get asked, you know, they I think they've learned a lot of resistance strategies and, you know, you can drag it out. I mean, you can say everything's a trade secret, which is an exemption in every single state law to disclosure, except in Massachusetts, weirdly enough. Although now that I've said that, they'll probably go change the law. But, you know, they just because I think reporters aren't around as much in the states that, you know, government officials just don't even think about being as open and accountable So that's, I think that's a big, big problem. In Greencastle, Indiana, where I work at DePauw University, there's a very active League of Women Voters, which is a nonpartisan organization. And, you know, I think what we need are more community organizations like that. I mean, they do a phenomenal job asking for information and pressing various governments around the state to give it. To them and then you know, you need you really need more civic groups like that. I think the other thing that's happening, um, and this is a, something I discovered in my teaching, was that the decline in local news, the decline of sort of pressure being placed on local officials who then are not as transparent. But then there's like nobody's really teaching civics anymore. I'm not, and I'm not the first one to say that by any means, but I think that has an effect too. So that students coming up, including aspiring journalists don't really know what they have a right to know.
0: So what would you say then to the journalists? What do they need to do?
1: Well, I think they should really educate themselves about their state and local laws. They should go to the city council, to the mayor, whatever, and say, you know, what are the things that you regularly track here? And when can I see those? You know, whether it's water usage or sewage or spending every month. You know, I want to regularize my visits to you, and I want you to give me this stuff. I mean, you, if you start going through contracts, which I did in Prince George's, you will find fascinating stuff. I mean, I found that Judy Smith, who is the the person who the TV show. Now
0: I'm um, oh the uh, the one with the priests? No, no it was okay. the
1: PR person. Oh God, well that's too bad. Anyway, she worked for George Bush. She anyway, she had a contract for Prince with Prince George's County Council for something like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and they had five PR people on the staff. Now you tell me why you need that, and nobody could really explain it to me. I looked at the contracts, I looked at the invoices. You know, it was hard to know what kind of work she did. And, you know, that's just one of many. And you can see, you know, I think to be able to see how local government is spending money is really, really important. You might even be able to help them spend it more wisely. Who knows? But I think reporters in these communities need to really get to know the people who have the information. And that's usually the clerk or the secretary, the administrative assistant. Get to know those people, make them, help them understand what should be on the public record and come by every week and pick it up. In person.
0: Yeah, I, I knew a reporter who used to go to one of the local uh, town halls every Thursday, which is when they would put out the um, the packet for the next um, uh-huh. uh, town hall meeting, and she would bring donuts for the. Um, for the office and chat with the person who was there at the desk, you know, every week. And it was, it was sort of her date every week was to go there and talk to this woman about, Hey, what's going on around around city hall. And the fact that she was able to get other types of stories out of that, but then also establishing a, r- a rapport with that person right. so that, you know, those times when you really do need the information, you need somebody who can, who can advocate for you and help you out in those situations, right. just little things. I mean, those are just sort of basic things in cultivating a beat. Right. Which I
1: think is a lost art, quite frankly. I mean, there's too much being done by email and text and not enough in person.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I used to I covered uh, Fairfax County government and a large um, metropolitan newspaper whose name I will not say. It's the Washington Post (laughs) that I frequently see reporters who would sort of helicopter in because they weren't particularly interested in what was going on in the Fairfax city government. But they had to be there and they would, you know, be on their phones and, you know. Yeah, and that's sort of, of an
1: institutional thing, too, about what news organizations value. And it often is not the same thing as what their readers value. I mean, the readers actually want local accountability journalism.
0: No, and, and they can be actually really strangely exciting stories. Yep. That if you spend some time, you know, as as I had in the past, you know, going to, to the the planning commission and going through those documents, there are yeah. tons of stories in there yeah, about absolutely. money and about zoning and about, you know, parking and all types of issues yeah. that people really care about and Absolutely. are passionate about. Absolutely. And great, great stories. and But also learning about how the process works. And that's another thing. If you have the opportunity to... You know your newsroom or a group of reporters going into the local municipality and sitting down with you know the planning commissioners or just having an informal chat right. about the, what they do and how they do their jobs. I mean that helps you with your process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know it's I won't dwell on the planning commission except to say that I did cover it for a long time in Montgomery County, Maryland, and I got one of my best stories ever out of being at a planning board meeting for another reason and then hearing about Mitch Rails art gallery that he wanted a sewer for, and he turns out to be one of the wealthiest people in the world living right here in Potomac, and we didn't know about it. So I, I did get a good story about that. Judy Smith is the inspiration for Scandal, the TV show. Oh, oh okay.
0: <laughs> All right. Yes. All right. Okay. Yeah, I can see where that would be kind of kind of big and kind of interesting. Let's go back to the federal government. I know that you're, you're mostly uh, state and local, but You know, what what are your concerns sort of about the environment now Uh. around (laughs) transparency?
1: Well, I think, you know, if you start out as the Trump administration has very deliberately, and I think actually took the mainstream media a little while to catch on to how deliberate this strategy was. But, you know, if you start calling journalists enemies of the people, I mean, this is like out of an Ibsen play, the enemies of the people. I mean, that's just a very, very hostile, creating a hostile work environment, shall we say, for everybody. So, you know, I think that that was a big problem. I think that was clearly the intention all along. And I think the media hasn't quite figured out still how to respond to that. Um, And I think there is probably, there is some role for pushback on that kind of stuff. And whether it's to explain what it is that reporters do and why they do it, and explain that over and over and over again, either in the context of specific stories or in some kind of, you know, here's who we are and we're an institution in your community too. You know, I think the press, the media should do a good, job, better job, frankly, of asserting their rights to inform the public about what's going on. But I think the Trump administration actually has been very skillful at turning this into an us versus them kind of situation. And I'm not sure that the media has yet figured out how to get out of that.
0: It's really strange when you start seeing this come back to you in other arenas and you see it in social media and people talking about the press, um, you know, aping the words that that have been sort of fed to them. Right. And, you know, that's troubling. And, and I think the way to, you sort of allude to it, the, the way to combat that is to be as transparent as we can about our process and who we are and why we're doing this and what our job is, you know, we're not all cable news. You know, a lot of journalists are in your community covering the local issues. They're covering the the, the big city near you, putting a lot of hours in and not doing it because they're, they're like plying a particular political stance, but because they want to inform the public. That's what their job is. And so this idea that they're just creating fake news to sort of downgrade whatever political agenda somebody has is kind of ridiculous. But, I mean, you can say that, but unless you can sort of demonstrate it in what you do and show what good journalism creates, then, I mean, that's where there's going to be sort of victory in that. The problem is, uh, as Erud has been saying for the last 10 or 15 years, you know, newsrooms have shrunk. You said it yourself that the, there's not as much coverage at the local level this is where bad things begin to happen and it can create these opportunities for people to sort of game the system.
1: I think that's true. And I think that, you know, the the mistrust did not start with the Trump administration. You just said that. And so I think it, it behooves journalists to really to be more transparent. We want the government and private businesses and others to be transparent. We should be as open as possible as we can about our processes. And I think that that also means avoiding unnamed sources whenever possible. You know, we may know who they are and feel that they're trustworthy, but if that affects the ability of the public to really trust what you're writing, then you got to find a way around that, I think. I get it why people don't talk in the record, especially now. I mean, I think, you know, if you're in the State Department, you're probably terrified and in a few other government agencies. But, you know, the press needs to think about ways— to get the information, make it credible, ensure that it's credible, and try to just avoid saying, "Well, this was according to a source." I mean, Trump has really jumped on that. It's hard to agree with him and his views about the media, but I think on that one, that is a credibility problem for the press.
0: Again, it's it's a lack of understanding as to why we use unnamed sources. Right. We a lot of times we use unnamed sources because no one will speak to us on the record about right. something, but we through our reporting talking to several people that we trust who basically can't speak on the record or, or are scared to speak on the record, mm-hmm. for us we feel that the, the need is more important for us to get that information out. That being said, I mean, that that op- this still opens up the possibility of somebody, you know, playing you, feeding you always. wrong information. It's always a risk. And, and also opening you, to, opening you up, as you said, for criticism that, hey, you know, you could be making this up. Right. Yeah, maybe you could be.
1: But I think, you know, just even to have a discussion, um, you know, the New York Times has started this thing on page two that I really like. It's sort of reporters writing about how they got the story or why they thought the way they did or whatever. And I think if other news organizations would do something like that and just sort of open it up and say, yes, we used unnamed sources in this story. There were 10 of them. They were all in a credible place. And here's why we felt we had to give them anonymity because- you would not have known about Jared Kushner's meeting with the Russians, frankly, if that hadn't somehow, you know, come out through various means. That you know, people I think tipped reporters to the idea this was now in the it was now in the public documents actually, which was sort of interesting. But they weren't scouring those public documents.
0: I mentioned this on the podcast before about this podcast that the the Washington Post does. Can he do that? And they rolled out a big story a couple of months ago, and then they had the reporters in on that podcast talking about it. And it's just that level of transparency as to how your reporters do their jobs. I mean, serves the larger mission. It explains who we are to people so they have a better understanding that we're not, we're not just you know, making stuff up. We're not, we're not trying to voice some political agenda. We're actually trying to work for the public good. And, right. and these are kind of the tools and the processes we use to do that. So I'm a new journalist out of out of school. I don't have a job or I'm looking for a job. I'd love to get into some type of investigative journalism. What advice would you have for me? You're a teacher, right? I
1: am teaching. And as you know, I was an editor for 10 years, too. And that's really a teaching job in many ways. But I've also been a reporter for like 20 plus years. So I've been all over the fence on this one. You know, first of all, I think anybody who wants to be a journalist now. I think investigative reporter is redundant, frankly, and I'm not sure I would go out and sell myself to an editor and say, I want to be an investigative reporter. You know, I think I want to be a great reporter, and I know how to go after all kinds of information, and I know how to get people to talk to me. I mean, that is so key, the human factor in all of this. You know, get off the email, quit text messaging your sources, go see people in person. I mean, I tell my students that all the time. And actually, I taught before I went to DePauw. I taught a class at the University of Maryland, and they were all seniors, so they were in their fourth year. And, and at Maryland, they really studied journalism. You know, every year at DePauw, it's more of a liberal arts college, so it's a little bit of a different experience. And you know, I said to these students in their fourth year, I said, "I don't want to see any email interviews." And you know, their jaws dropped. They were like. What do you mean you don't want to see any email interviews? And I said, you have no clue who's answering that email. I don't care whose account it's on or who it says. You don't really know who's writing the response to you. Plus, you know, you lose the back and forth. Just like you said, showing up at the planning board for one thing and discovering other things. I mean, there's a lot of serendipity in reporting. And the best reporters are lucky, I think. And that's because they're there. They show up. They're in person. They talk to people. They you know, they're not intimidating. They're not flexing their muscle and saying, you got to give it to me. They're using charm and guile and whatever. And all of the in-person contact, it's through in-person contacts that I've got my best stories.
0: What was uh, Scaramucci? That was uh, the New Yorker. Was that a, was on the phone or was that in person? You know, I, I
1: think it was on the phone. I mean, I would certainly, in, if you can't do in-person, phone is better. <laughs> and thank God he did it because then we knew what we knew. And uh-huh. he was apparently so unsophisticated that he forgot to say it was off the record. I find that hard to believe, but okay. You know, that was important, actually, that that came out, I thought. I mean, that was, you know, if you've seen The, the Wolf of Wall Street or whatever, I mean, that's the way they are on Wall Street for sure. But, you know, I think it was important that we knew that this kind of approach to life was now in the government,
0: so- in the White House. <laughs> So what are your hopes uh, going forward uh, with transparency and secrecy in government?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I I will say that I was really thrilled that this series got a big award that I'm going to collect in a couple of weeks at the Society of Professional Journalists. I got the Sunshine Award. So, you know, I think that was a big deal um, because I think by identifying this issue as a state issue and a local issue, I'm hoping that, you know, I can get more government officials community activists, as I said, the League of Women Voters and others to really pay attention and sort of make this part of their mission and work, I think, hand in hand with reporters to try to just get public officials to understand that transparency for them in the long run is a better thing. It makes them more credible, more accountable and, you know, might even help them be reelected. Who knows? You know, those who hide information often look kind of smarmy and and untrustworthy so you know i think we have to change the culture in the country and you know if these stories can do a little bit towards that i'm glad but i think the next thing that has to happen is community organizations and people who teach government in high school need to really get on board and get people to understand this is a key part of maintaining and enhancing our democracy
0: and that's something i hear a lot you know civics and media literacy just so people understand how things work right getting us all better educated about the way government functions so they have you have a real understanding of when things aren't working and or how they could work better right. uh, community organizing I think is another thing there appear to be signs that, that more people are getting involved they're more inspired to involve and I hope that that's the case because that's where you begin to see real change because things are a mess <laughs> and it can only get better and that's that's why we're here to, to help make things better Miranda, thank you for coming in this oh is great. thanks
1: a lot for having me it was fun
0: Next time on It's All Journalism.
1: Rural versus urban of red versus blue are not the same frames that exist at the local level. And the only times that in conversation people seem frustrated with local media, particularly vehemently, would be in places where, for instance, local media somehow got involved in conversation around those national frames and issues. That as long as it's local media covering issues that matter to the region, there was very much a, a blurring of the lines of these frames when you weren't talking about things on a, on a national narrative level and you were talking about them as it affects the region.
0: Join us next week when Andrea Wenzel and Sam Ford discuss political polarization in rural communities, something they wrote about in a recent Tau Center report. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.
1: The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley.
0: We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport.
1: We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcast1.com or at wtop.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host,
0: Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy bureaucratic politics-only reputation it tries to shed.
1: The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, onecom or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.